And diet culture, oh, it's so sneaky. Because not only does it not work, but then it's somehow our fault. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but that totally plummeted my self-esteem. It plummets my client's self-esteem. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general education purposes, and while our guest Bree is a licensed professional counselor, she's not your counselor, so we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with a licensed professional accordingly. That said, I want to introduce you to today's guest. Bree does body image coaching and education for people who are tired of hating their body. In the it's a small world cycle, <laughs> when I reached out, Bree actually told me that she was fangirling a little bit because back in ye olden days, and I quote, you were a huge follower in my paleo days, which I think says a lot about how much the collective we has learned as it relates to diet culture and the journey and path that we've all been on. But I want to share a little bit about your website as a means of introduction, and then I would love if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Bree says, I felt like I was in a fat suit. I fully expected that feeling of being stuck in my body would end the day I finally lost the weight. Welp, that day never came. I hit my dieting rock bottom several years later. Through lots of therapy, crying, and cognitive dissonance, I began to realize that the size of my body represented a narrative that I had been trapped in my whole life. I believed the lie that the size of my body was the thing keeping me from living a full life. But what I discovered was that it was not my body, but my beliefs about my body that were keeping me from living a full life. When I realized that my body wasn't the thing that needed to change, but instead the way I spoke to myself that needed to change, I recognized how much unlearning I had to do. And with that unlearning came the loss. So Brie, you call the work that you do body grief and define it as when you look up the definition of sorrow, it is defined as loss that causes distress. And this resonated with me while attempting to make peace with my own body and body image, but I think for you as well, combining your clinical knowledge and personal experiences around the topic of grief and body image to coin a framework of body image work with your clients to now call body grief. And to be clear, you are also approved from a dietitian certification program that your body image bootcamp qualifies for 15 CEUs or U's, meaning health professionals can get continuing education credits necessary to maintain their credentials from learning more about what you teach. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. I love this. And I would love for you to share a little bit more because I do think that this is so critical. We've I've talked to a couple of medical professionals. And we also did a body peace show, which I think aligns a lot with body grief. And 
this idea that we, not just ourselves, need to do this work, but medical professionals need to kind of become aware of this and how much impact their words or their actions has on us is so critical. So I love this idea that professionals can actually get continuing education credits through working with you. Yes, absolutely. So first and foremost, it is such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And and yes, I mean, you know, back back in my paleo days, I was such a huge fan of you and your whole family. I'm, I'm pretty sure I bought all of your books. And so I I was, you know, you know, I got my start as a therapist working in eating disorder recovery. And so I, I would really say that that's probably how a lot of my work sort of came to be because in combination with existing in a larger body and, you know, I, I had noticed, you know, when, you know, I was looking over our, you know, our show notes or whatnot, you know, using the word I'm going to use that my community doesn't like to use, but the word obese, right? And so I started looking up where the word actually came from. And if you look at the, the, the Greek translation of the word obese, it, quite literally means to eat oneself to death. That is the translation of the word obese. And yet that is the the pathologized and medicalized word that we use to describe body size. And I identify as fat, but in a reclaimed way. And I have clients who, who that is a struggle for. Like it is a struggle to identify as fat because of the narrative around and the stigmatization around the word. And so as I was working in eating disorder recovery with clients, my own body image, I call it cognitive dissonance, really came about. It really was heightened. And you know, so uh, for the for the layperson, I'll, I'll break down cognitive dissonance. But essentially, cognitive dissonance is when your thoughts and your actions don't align. So I would sit with girls and say, it doesn't matter what your body looks like, and you have permission to eat all foods. While simultaneously, I was cutting out certain foods for quote-unquote health. And I was really stuck in what I call the suck of I couldn't grasp why is the narrative different? Why is it different for these girls who have eating disorders versus me? And what I came to realize is that part of the dissonance was actually being hoodwinked by what we call diet culture, right? So if we, you know, diet culture is a $72 billion industry that profits off the idea that fatness should be pathologized. And what we know when we look at empirical research is one, that health is so much more than what we eat and how much we move our bodies. It is genetic it is socioeconomic status. It is, you know, environment. There are so many things that contribute to health that to put the entire onus on a being of you are responsible for your health is not only deeply unfair, but it what it does is it creates this othering 
which we have done throughout all of time, and I'd be happy to get into, of even just how the hatred of fatness is actually rooted in racism. And, you know, I can I can recommend some really great books and authors to, to explore that. But what I found for myself was when you took away, okay, well, if it's not about health and it's not about anything other than I don't want to be fat, why do I hate being in a fat body? And this is where I discovered the body grief. And, and so I, you know, to expand on my definition of grief, I call, I describe body grief as the distress caused by the perceived loss accompanied with body changes that are completely out of your control. And truly the definition of body grief can expand beyond that. It can also include getting a diagnosis that is unfamiliar and your body changes with that. It, there's, there's so many layers and levels to body grief. But for me, it was that no matter what I did, I was not in control of changing my body size. And I didn't like this. I didn't like my current reality because I believed that I would be treated less than in society because of my body size, which as we know is true. And that is fat phobia. And the way I've been able to move through fat phobia for myself is recognizing how the values of society, the values of diet culture that I have been hoodwinked and brainwashed to believe don't actually align with my values as a human being, nor my values as a mental health counselor. So I, I love working with folks who are on this journey to body acceptance, but I also am really passionate about working with providers on how to help their clients do this as well. I think it's such a powerful <laughs> point to think about the restriction associated with food. And I'm just going to leave it open-ended because I think that it applies to a lot of different ways. As a mental health concern for those who are thin, but it is prescribed for those who are overweight, the exact same behaviors. I think that's a really powerful point. And I do want to point people to, we have had shows before 421 on body image, 471 and 472 on the harm of weight discrimination and stigma. And then as well as our recent season three, episode nine show with Dr. Dodell on optimizing health, where we talk about the racism roots of fat phobia and how weight stigma, weight discrimination, fat phobia all combined to have negative health impacts. And I think where the conversation is even more broad for me is that this idea of body grief also applies to so many different areas to listeners or people with health ailments that often come to an elimination diet like paleo or one of many, many elimination diets out there with this idea of not experiencing or not wanting to fully kind of have that grief and 
wanting to take the control, like you said, wanting to solve the problem because we don't want to admit that something is out of our control and something is genetic. And I think to an extent, we've seen that there are things that affect that. And the research shows over and over again that many of the lifestyle things that go into being stressed have much greater impact than, for example, a food that we might eat. Yet I see people time and time again not prioritizing their sleep, not you know, reducing the things that cause them stress in their life, not working less, not, you know, creating more time for joy, yet they are so quick to want to, what can I do with food? How can I eliminate? And I think that to me kind of goes back to your original point of this mentality that we all have around food and dieting as being something we can control which in and of itself is how one would define disordered eating. So I'll put links in the show notes to all those shows, but is that, have you found that to be the case as you've kind of gone along your journey and the different people you're experiencing and then your own personal experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned this, you paraphrased that's it's actually a quote by Deborah Gard, who is prominent in the health at every size community. She says this quote of what is what is diagnosed in a thin body is prescribed in a fat body. And that dissonance of wow, that's it's so true. Oh, is that so? And and you know, there are there are a multitude of reasons that contribute to body size. And one of the most prevalent is weight cycling that there is enough research to support that when we restrict and we lose weight and our body then regains that weight, that weight cycling is what will change our set weight point. And I think for someone like myself who, I mean, I remember my first diet as early as 10. I'm, I'm pretty confident that that probably contributes a lot to the reason I exist in a larger body today. But I think we're almost asking the wrong question when we ask, you know, why, why can't I lose weight? And instead asking, why does it matter so much that you can't? And that's the piece where I feel like the beliefs live that if we can challenge those belief systems, maybe living in a large body won't be as horrible as we've believed that it would be. And that's been true for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're going to kind of dive into some of that as we unpack this like very, very deeply packaged unit called diet culture here. But I think what is what is interesting to me is kind of when I challenge people on those things, I hear, but I want to be healthy. And so I just want to remind our listeners that, you know, BMI or the size of your body is actually more often incorrect than it is correct in predicting health. There are people of all sizes with all different kinds of health. And while we can make great choices to optimize things for ourselves, it's also worth noting that 
it becomes this ism, this idea of being better than somebody else, oftentimes is how we justify these behaviors in our head to to try to optimize health or be healthy. And so while I myself, I want to have energy, I want to be able to, you know, play with my kids, I want to have fun, I want to be able to travel when I'm older, there are things that I want in my life. And I I want to make as many decisions as I can to set myself up for that. I also have found that it has been, and Brie, because I follow you on social, I know that this is a journey in your own way as well, for me to kind of like, shut down this process of all the things that come at us from the outside world. And we're never going to be at a place where we just don't hear them or they don't affect us or those kinds of things. But we do have to go on a journey or I have had to go (laughs) for sure on a journey of telling myself, why do I think that way? Is that really how I want to think or how I want to feel? Like you said, Brie, I love the way you phrased, that's not... The values that I hold as a human, I don't want to judge someone that way. I don't know about their life. And that applies to a lot more than just body size. So why is it that in body size, I allow myself to have those assumptions? So I want to kind of like break apart this idea for people because I think it is so deeply rooted that oftentimes we don't even realize that we're kind of making assumptions or doing these things. And we think that it's research-based or science-based or, you know, because of health and, you know, we've talked before on the show about the socioeconomic elements mm-hmm. that go into that, that oftentimes nobody has control over. For example, the people who live in Flint, Michigan, right? Like they're experiencing health trauma from their water being bad and potentially can't move. We're going to have empathy for them. We need to have empathy for everyone who's experiencing something from that factor. And I think it's a lot easier when we think about it that way. And we're like, well, of course, I'm, you know, we, we want those people to get as much health access as they can. And we want to help them and we want to do these things. Then we need to apply that to a much broader spectrum because it's not as easy for us to understand or see if we haven't had those lived experiences. I'm getting completely off track, but... (laughs) I'd love to, I'd love to make one comment on that too, of like a hundred percent agree. And, and if, you know, your listeners are hearing this and they're like, okay, but like health is still important to me. What is health, right? How do you define health? And, you know, I, I, I remember, and I, and I actually talk about this on my own podcast. I remember the time where my therapist said to me, okay, well, what does health mean to you? And I said, you know, it probably has something to do with like eating fruits and vegetables, not feeling out of control with food and exercising on a daily basis. Meanwhile, I'm pretty sure I was doing paleo at the time. And so she was like, okay, so then you're then by that definition, you're healthy. And I was like, no, 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 no. I also need to be thin. And she said, but that's not how you just described health. And what I had, I mean, I wrestled with that for a while of recognizing that, hold on, I have now, I, I have said the right words for a long time. I have said, I just want to be healthy, but never actually explored what health looked like. For for me at the time, probably I recorded that podcast episode, health looked like getting a clean bill of health from the doctor, that all my blood work came back positive or, or in, a, in a good light. 
my definition of health has transformed from that because it no longer comes from this position of, as you said, morality. And I realized that part of the reason I wanted a clean bill of health was because I didn't want to experience fat phobia from my doctors or from society. And I believe that every body grief hurdle actually comes down to one of three things. People's concern for health, people's distress with discomfort, and people's fear of judgment of other people. I'm like pondering all of those, and I absolutely see how those buckets encompass so much. I, and I 100% identify with this idea of when you live in a larger body or for our listeners who are in a body they're uncomfortable with for a variety of reasons, right? It might be size, but it also might be you're underweight and having a difficult time putting on weight because of an autoimmune condition, or there's just everybody is not satisfied with their body. I mean, time, time and time again, research shows us that, especially for women, that we've almost all of us been on diets and are uncomfortable within our bodies. And I would say for me to kind of, I have had this desire my whole life to prove I'm fit. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm healthy. Let me show you my blood work. No, I don't have those problems. You know, all of these kinds of things. And, and why? Because of exactly what you said, because I want to tell people while I'm in a larger body, like I'm doing all the healthism things that I need to do to make me be better. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that, right? Like I'm, I'm not the discrimination that everybody faces. I'm not lazy. Mm -hmm. I'm not this and that. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. know those realities to be true because surveys are done and weight is one of the remaining discriminations still allowed in this country. Like your body size is, is not protected the way that your age or your gender or your sex or even a medical condition like pregnancy is protected, but not weight. Your employers can choose to not hire you because they perceive you as lazy if your body's larger. And so for me, it's definitely been a journey of like, but look at me, I'm doing all these things. And I don't, don't put me in this bucket over here. And that is 100% both morality and trying to carve out a piece of protecting myself from judgment and being so worried about what others perceive of me versus what I perceive of myself. And that journey in the last really two years, I've, I've said before on the show, like, COVID has done a number on the world in so many terrible, terrible ways. And the positive that I want to take out of this is that the space that it allowed for me to have personal growth, like it was a very dark time. And instead of going to the darkest place I could go, I did a lot of learning and unlearning and trying to become a better version of myself, which I try to share here. Mm. I I just want to, you know, in, in doing my due diligence as a, you know, a person who is continually doing my anti-racism work, I, I want to stress that while fat oppression exists, which is evident because of all of the things that you just listed, that we also have to consider that that is just one 
one form of oppression we see in society that, you know, fat black women actually have the hardest time because not only are they not, you know, hired or do they experience, you know, judgment from their medical providers, but also, you know, black women have the highest death because of, of pregnancies gone wrong in the hospital. Like we have to, if we're going to talk about fat oppression, we also have to be willing to look at the other oppressions that exist and that yes, do do we have a harder time as fat people getting jobs, getting unbiased medical treatment? So I would I would adjust the statement to say that it's in liberal spaces where we are more widely accepting of marginalization. Fat fatness is still not one that we are open to accepting. Is that does that make sense? Yeah. And I I Love that you brought that up, and I'm a strong proponent of that as well. I also talk a lot about the discrimination with queer culture and yeah. the idea that, you know, black trans women are yes. just the absolute most discriminated. So I appreciate that and wholly agree. This podcast is sponsored by, wait for it, Vegamore. Yes, the hair growth brand that I have been using, loving, and obsessed with for over a year now. My hair is literally the hair of my dreams. I hadn't been able to have healthy hair growth since I was postpartum with Wesley over 12 years ago. And then with autoimmune and long haulers, my shedding was out of control. I was seeing huge clumps of hair in the shower, on everyone's laundry, and tumbleweeds all over the house. No matter what I tried, supplements, online techniques to protect my hair, even other brands of protective products, like nothing worked. And I was starting to see the thinning. I know I'm not alone. Hair loss happens from aging, from anxiety, lack of sleep nutrient deficiencies, even prior hair care products or environmental stressors. So I did the research to find a brand that had the cleanest ingredients and proven results. Long before I shared it with you, I found Vegamore. They were the only one that met my standards. Clinically tested to improve density up to 52%, reduced shedding by 76%, and 91% of customers say they saw visibly thicker hair in just three months. I gave it a try and I can tell you, having used it for 15 months now, my hair has absolutely grown faster and fuller. Their holistic approach to hair health uses smart botanicals that promote visibly thicker, fuller, longer looking hair without the use of harmful chemicals. And all of their products are cruelty free and never contain parabens. Seriously, Vegamore has transformed my hair. And they have something for everyone looking to improve their hair health, including a new Grow Ageless to help control grays. I use the Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner and the clarifying serum that goes along with that called the Foundation Kit. It smells so good using only fruit oils, no synthetic fragrances, and it creates visibly thicker hair and improves hair from the roots. Just massage it into your scalp like you normally would shampoo and conditioner, and it's as simple as that. I also really like that clarifying serum, which is used before you wash to improve scalp health, and it helps to remove buildup from dry shampoo. 
Theirs is the best clean version of dry shampoo that I have ever tried. I put all my favorites for you at vegamore.com slash whole view. And if you want to give it a try, there is no risk because they have a 90 day money back guarantee. Get the hair that you have always wanted with Vegamore. Go to vegamore.com slash whole view and use code whole view to save 20% off your first order. They also have discounted subscription options that you can change at any time. That's what I use. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash whole view, code whole view to save 20% at vegamore.com slash whole view. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, which is the only way I'm able to get the highest quality protein in these ravenous teenagers these days. I love that I can get my custom subscription box early because having all four of them home for the summer, we are going through food at rapid speeds. This way I can avoid hearing the kids whine about being hungry and not being able to find anything to eat and helps us be prepared for dinner, even if I haven't meal planned. The convenience of heading to the freezer and having ButcherBox meats waiting for me versus needing to run to the store again is huge. We have been loving grilling. In fact, Cole, our oldest, who wants to be a chef, has been making dinner at least once a week. It's magic. He grills, adds a side salad, and we're good to go. Meals come together so quickly without dirtying up the kitchen and heating the whole house. And the best part, and why ButcherBox is my specific meat delivery of choice, is that it is humane and sustainably raised The beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones. It ships for free, frozen, right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. I love supporting B Corps, which they are. And if you're not sure about your summer plans, you can pause when you're away or change it as you need. Get summer sizzling started with the special butcher box deal for our listeners. Free bacon for life of your membership plus $10 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash whole view and use code whole view to get one pack of free bacon in every box for the life of your membership plus $10 off your first order. I love these life deals because it's like infinite savings. That's butcherbox.com slash whole view and use code whole view to claim this deal. I want to move us into what we actually intended to talk about. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but also kind of preaching to each other's choir a little bit here. So can you talk a little bit about You mentioned earlier working with clients in eating disorder recovery and what that has looked like as you've started your body grief work and probably found that a lot of those you're working with have disordered eating on the other side, right? Like we talked about this when one is in a larger body coming to this idea of disordered eating or orthorexia, like it's a positive thing, right? Because it's recommended by so many people. Mm -hmm. And and so just to clarify, your question is, are, what are the similarities between eating disorders and disordered eating? Is that the question? 
I think so. I, I think also this idea that we can be having disordered eating without realizing it. I think that the definition <laughs> of an eating disorder is very clear, and I'm using quotation marks when I say that, right? I think we we learn about disordered eating in elementary school. I mean, we learn about eating disorders. We do not learn about disordered eating in elementary school from the perspective of, you know, red flags or be careful, sure. be safe. And I think mm. that as an adult, I wish that I had realized that some of the behaviors that I were was doing was causing yeah. stress and harm in my body in ways that I wasn't being accepting or aware of. Yeah, I, I would say that like, you know, even though we learned about eating disorders, we still learned about eating disorders in a fallible way. I mean, the DSM doesn't even, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is how we diagnose, doesn't even consider, you know, if, if you are in a fat body and have an eating disorder, you're considered atypical when majority of eating disorders exist in people in a larger body. And so while we learn about it, we we learn about what we imagine is like that worst case scenario and not our neighbor or our grandmothers or our family members who have just really disordered eating around food. And, and I agree that the disordered eating is really normalized that, you know, I look back at my life and I'm sure you can too. I only ever got praise when I was restrictive with food. I only ever got admiration and, wow, you have such amazing willpower. I could never do that. And now, now I look at it and it, it was like, it, it never even crossed anybody's mind of like, I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if, you know, that if, you know, this is actually doing what she's hoping it would do, which would be, you know, quote unquote, if, if my goal was health. And what I can tell you is that when you start to unlearn all of these messages about what you think you need to be, including like cutting out foods or having less of this, more of this, or crowding out all of these, these things that we have just sort of taken as oath and word. And, and they're not really subs like they're not substantive. They're not grounded in truth. I'll, I'll give you a, a little, a little tangent. I'm really good at those. I had a professor who said, you know, he told the story of like, you know, a, a, a little girl and her mom were making a roast and mom cuts the end of the roast off. And the little girl says, well, why did we cut the end of the roast off? And she said, well, that's the way my mom did it. So they call grandma and they're like, grandma, why do you cut the end of the roast off? And she goes, well, that's the way my mom did it. And so they call great grandma, great grandma, why did you cut the end of the roast off? And great grandma says, because the roast didn't fit in the pan. And that's a, that's a lot of what I feel like we have just continued to do what our mothers, our grandmothers and the, the women and the, the people before us have done, never really questioning of, is what we're doing working? Is it providing the results that we are, quote unquote, hoping that it would do? And diet culture, oh, it's so sneaky because not only does it not work, but then it's somehow our fault. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that totally plummeted my self-esteem. It plummets my client's self-esteem. And so when they realize, wait a second, I have been fighting this 
uphill battle that they were never going to win. And they realized, I don't actually have control or quote-unquote willpower like I thought I did. It's Sonia Renee Taylor talks about this a little bit in her book. It's it's choosing to not fight the battle. Sonia Renee Taylor and her book, The Body is Not an Apology, she says that fighting fighting diet culture, fighting, you know, the ideal beauty myth. You have two choices. You can continue to climb the ladder knowing that it the end point doesn't exist. It's not real. It's a fake end point. So you can keep climbing to no avail or you can say, screw it. I'm not going to climb the ladder anymore. She says it much more eloquently than I I just did, but definitely a recommended read on those who are looking to make peace with their current body. Absolutely. And I, I love that you mentioned needing to unlearn in order to truly recover from one's own body grief. I know that unlearning also relates to a lot of the different things that we talk about in especially social justice, right? In order to be aware of the impacts of what our thoughts or actions have, we have to be aware. Then we have to accept that that's causing harm. And then we have to unlearn doing that action or those words or whatever it was in order to recover. Just like you reminding me of different things on the show, I think that's part of unlearning, right? We have to have people who will hold us accountable in our life. And we have to be willing to kind of do the work to say, I made a mistake. Let me unlearn this. I'm wondering what some of those actions might be for our listeners to implement as they work through their own body grief. And I state that also kind of with an asterisk as you talk about it in that I've actually heard from a number of listeners who have health ailments who lose weight, right? So who are on the like 180 side of our personal experiences, who have body grief in their own way because their bodies are losing weight and they don't want to because of a health ailment or something like that. So the easiest example is someone who's undergoing cancer, right? So they're they're going to lose weight because of the treatments that they're having on their body. And obviously, as you described it earlier, that is a diagnosis that one would not be happy about. And so then they meet someone that they haven't seen in a while who doesn't know what they're going through and who is overly complimentary of how amazing they look and going on and on and on. And really what that person is doing is telling them like, you should have got cancer sooner. Like it's it's a terrible thing to experience. And so I think about that example as people who listen to the show are experiencing, you know, that a similar type experience with autoimmune disease and different kinds of things with body grief as well. I think, you know, for me, I I'm I tried to kind of step outside my own lived experience, right, of of mm. of this and also knowing that regardless of what kind of body grief you're experiencing, there's got to be actions that we implement to do that unlearning and to start to understand to to be the friend that holds someone accountable and who also talks to ourselves differently. Yes. Oh, and I, I love that you mentioned, you know, praising somebody for for, you know, cancer. It's the same as when eating disorder clients get praised for weight loss, it's they're getting praised for their eating disorders. And we live in a culture that that is what we do. We comment on people's bodies. And that's another thing that we have to unlearn. And so one thing that I would like to share is that first and foremost, 
going into this journey to have the utmost compassion for yourself because unlearning, it takes time. You know, I don't believe that time has healing powers. I don't think it's, you know, it, it, the only thing that time does is allow the information and the wound to be more familiar and that I believe that we can change our minds. We can change the way that we think and we believe. And this is backed by science. This, unlike weight loss or sustained weight loss, is backed by science. And this process is called neuroplasticity. And, and neuroplasticity is the idea that we our thoughts and our behaviors are linked and that the way we challenge our beliefs is that when we would automatically go down this neural pathway, we would find an alternate path. And so I have four steps that I recommend clients explore and go through as they are trying to unlearn these messages. And it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be, you know, it's almost like opposite dieting, right? Like dieting in the beginning, it's like, okay, I can do this. All right. I'm understanding. And then as you're going on, you're like, I can't do this. I can't do this. That's what it's going to feel like in the beginning It's going to be like, I can't do this. I don't understand. This feels hopeless. And that's where the grief is, is we're going to sit in the suck of that. And so my four steps for sitting in the suck is one, let's, let's reconnect to our body. If we can safely, let's Let's investigate what is the story or the narrative that's playing out that maybe isn't aligning with the way our body is feeling. Two, we need to manage it. I think part of the problem is like, especially in the body positivity movement, is that it everyone wants to do the sexy work, right? They want to do like, I want to wear the bikini and I want to, you know, <laughs> I want to do the boudoir shot. And you know, maybe that's something you get to do at some point, but maybe that's not where we start. Maybe by starting there, we actually are traumatizing ourselves. And so I, I like to have my clients do this scale of scaling. So on a scale of one to 10, how distressful would it be to wear the bikini on the beach? If it's higher than a five or a six, maybe we don't start there. Maybe we start with like a one or a two, something that is a small challenge, but that is not going to send you into a distressful downward spiral. Three, we need to honor the suck. So if part of the narrative that comes up with, let's say you're like, okay, well, I want to be healthy, but if I'm not quote unquote healthy, then I'm going to get misunderstood by my doctors. That is a legitimate suck. It, it is a legitimate suck. So how do we sit in that discomfort? Can you journal about it? Can you talk to a friend or a therapist? This is not going to feel comfortable. And that's why we need to manage. We need to assess where is this discomfort sitting? How distressful is it? There are plenty of things that I have not assessed yet, and I'm okay with it. And it's so different than before when everything about body image, I was like, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to assess it. I'm not going to feel it because once I'm thinner, I won't have to deal with it. That is part of the pattern we're trying to unlearn and change. That's that, that nasty, sneaky diet culture thing, right? Because how many women or men, how many folks get to 
whatever it was their goal was and then the goal moves or you know Wait. now they have this other thing that they need and i i think that is that is the trick is that it is never ending the diet culture belief is always going to be well now you've achieved that but gravity's made things saggy or you have extra skin mm-hmm. or now you need to do you know, aesthetic work on your face or, you know, you need to do that. It's, it's always, it's, it's It's always going to, no, it's never enough. And I think that's the thing that I, I have teenagers now and I like keep trying to tell them over and over again. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I get it. It sucks. Being a teenager sucks. You feel so uncomfortable in your body, like everything, like you want to talk about the suck being a teenager sucks. (laughs) And it is never going to be utopia if you don't manifest it yourself in your brain. And I know that that's impossible to understand right now, but trust me when I tell you, whatever it is you're thinking, if I just had that, it would be better. It won't. It will always be something else. And we have evidence of that. Like I, I always use like the Kardashians as an example. They are the epitome of wealth and beauty and they still Photoshop their photos. Like it, it, if, if anybody was going to have figured it out and being like, yep, once you get to this level of body satisfaction, you will have no more problems. If once you get to this level of wealth or fame, you will have no more problems it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And the reason I think it doesn't exist is because we, in that scenario, we are serving what other people think of us yeah, rather than what we think of ourselves. I would argue that not only does it not exist, but I think it actually best in a in a potentially worse way. I don't know because it's not my lived experience, but from what I can see from celebrities who become suicidal or who have addiction problems, that what happens is you get to that place where you quote unquote should be happy, right? Like you've achieved whatever it was that you set out to achieve and it's not serving you the way that you thought it was. And now you still have all these feelings that have never been dealt with. And so they, they manifest in different sort of ways. I I always say that I have just the utmost compassion for celebrities and I would never judge anybody because having to be in the public eye and like champagne problems. But I mean, I imagine for yourself as well. And, and, you know, for me being in such a small public eye, but still being on social media and having people make assumptions and judge my life. And, and, (laughs) you know, I, 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 I remember following you and seeing all of the things you guys would do. And then you would still, you would still get like criticism from people about being unhealthy and it would enrage me because I'm like, what more, do you want her to do like she's already <laughs> doing all of the things? And 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 so part of my unlearning, I had this wound of this core belief of I can't be everyone. I can't be for everyone. And I, I hated that because I, I believed that I am a recovering people pleaser, that I could that I could somehow be for everyone. And so part of my reframe, which is what I needed is that you are not for everyone and you are dearly loved. And so anytime I start thinking about, well, yeah, maybe the world doesn't love me, but my world does. And so 
the other thing I've recent, the other thing I've recently heard lately that was really helpful for me is that because I had the same have I'm gonna I'm gonna use present tense because I'm working through it still that if I just my thing and I talked about it last week on the Enneagram show is like my thing is if I just control enough things if I just do enough then I'll I'll make the puzzle align perfectly so that everybody can be happy and you know it'll it'll be fine and obviously it's not possible I can't solve the world's problems and so what I've found is that over the years as as I've grown and I've changed my my friendship circle in particular has changed yeah. and I have a hard time when I see other people have really long friendships so for example you know, you know, you have a friend or maybe it's you who has someone who they met in elementary school and are still incredibly close with. And maybe they don't live in the same town, but they travel once or twice a year together and like all these things. Right. And I don't have that. I don't have friends whom I met in a very early part of my life that I have maintained closeness with. I have dear friends who, you know, I still am friends with that, like I met in college and I have a lot of online friends that I've met over the last like 10, 15 years that I'm close with and I like to visit, but I don't have friends from like way, way back in the day. And I, I really had a hard time with that. Mm. And I think this quote that I heard was that if, if you are learning and growing, you're going to outgrow your friends if they're not doing it with you. Mm. And it was really helpful for me to reframe instead of feeling like I was a failure at maintaining friendships, that I was a bad person because I'd done something wrong. And believe me, I'm not perfect. I've made plenty of mistakes. It helped me though to consider that when I realized I made those stakes or, you know, when I tried to move forward in different areas of my life and growth areas and in particular having a trans foster child caused a rift in both business and personal relationships that I really didn't expect and realizing that like those aren't relationships that I that I need to mourn or have grief for in a way of like I want them back there's something to grieve and then move forward from and the realization that I have unlearned and I have grown in that positive way and that like sure. that reframing is just, for me, it was really powerful to be able to let go of some of that stuff. Well, I'll even, so something that I had to learn when I, when I, you know, stripped away, like, okay, if, if it's not about health and it's not about anything other than like, like, what is, what is the barrier for me that my fear was that if I existed in a larger body that I wouldn't be able to find a romantic partner. And even as I said it out loud, I was like, okay, that's stupid because I know so many people in larger bodies in romantic partnerships. And I felt like, but I'm different. I, and, and here's, here's the other piece is that my healing, I'm still single, but the difference is now is that my singleness, I do not believe is attached to my body size. My singleness is is due to my social anxiety and not wanting to go on dates. But you know, I I also was in this camp of like I'll start dating when I lose weight, when I arrive. And so, in living my best life, I've started going on dates. I've started doing the thing, even though I'm afraid 
okay, well, what if, what if somebody says something about my body? And guess what? A majority of the people out there are super nice or super weird. And I'm like, this is why I'm single. But I think that I call this the head to heart knowledge. It's when we know something in our brain, but it doesn't translate into our soul, into our heart. Like, why does it still stop us? And when I look at it, I'm like, that's an old wound. I probably, somebody, I mean, many people told me, oh, but if you're in a larger body, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to ever, you know, find love. And I believed that. And I took that and I, I, you know, I buried that seed and it grew. And now it's time to uproot that plant. That is not a, that is not a plant that is serving me anymore. And so the remnants still show up and in other areas of my life, but People will look at me and say, oh my gosh, if I could just have, you know, the business that you have. And I'm like, the grass is always going to be greener. We're always going to look at someone else and see our loss. And, and, and so I, there's a, a person I follow online who's a trauma therapist. I'm also, I'm, you know, a little ADHD. I'm so curious what your Enneagram number is. <laughs> But uh, we can talk. We I have a story to tell you too. We can talk about that on the Patreon because I know we're trying. I wanted to get through these these sure. steps. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll go back to that. So my so my four steps are investigate, manage, honor, and then the final one is assess. What do you need in the moment? Is there anything that you can do to mitigate or lessen the distress or the discomfort? Okay. So I wanted to get through that because. I want to ask our, our listeners to, to go on a little journey with us. And this is the part where when you and I were talking before the show, I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be a step for my listeners. Mm -hmm. And, and frankly, it's a step for me. The, the phrase fat positivity in and of itself is, is hard when you're on the journey to not immediately associate negativity with the word fat, which you talked about at the top of the show. So yeah. listeners, I want you to take a deep breath. I'm gonna, we're gonna we're gonna walk there together. I'm gonna take a deep breath and envision your brain literally opening to take in a concept that we're gonna talk about. Close your eyes, do that slow, square breathing that we talked about, four count in, hold it. Let it out slowly. Can you see the doors of your brain literally opening? Are you with me? Am I, have I gone too woo-woo for you here? This is, this is real stuff. It's supported by science, I assure you. I want you to welcome these new thoughts as we approach this topic. So as Brie mentioned at the top of the show, the word obese is not a friendly word. And... The medical term for a larger body includes actually associating us with death in an English way by calling it morbidly obese. Culturally, we have created permission for people to literally hate fat people. And I can't even begin to list out the ways that those in larger bodies are shamed for simply existing. Literally, I remember being a teenager, riding my bike. I lived at the beach. That's where I lived. I was in shorts and a t-shirt. I wasn't even in a bikini. I was riding my bike and being shamed for my body as a young teenager by 
drunken tourists. And from that time through my whole life, I have experienced countless, countless examples of shame for simply existing. And so from that, I want to work on a concept that's critical for us to overcome this, both personally, what we may have experienced, but also societally, how we think of others. It's still a lot for me to unpack when I see somebody else that I don't immediately assume what I know about their their body, their habits, their health. First of all, it doesn't matter. It's not my business. It's not my body. (laughs) But also, I don't want to have those thoughts anymore. So Brie, I think we're ready for you to kind of talk with us a little bit about this concept of fat positivity and how it's affecting all of us. And we've already learned what we can unlearn to kind of do that. But if there are other recommendations you have. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I, what I would encourage listeners to do is I want you to imagine that you're living your best life within like reality, like, Sure, would we all love to, you know, win the lottery and I don't know, all the things, but within within reason, right? What does that look like? Does that look like going on the vacation? Does it look like quitting your job? Does it look like getting out there and dating? All of the things that you have put on hold to, quote unquote, fix your health, fix your discomfort, or avoid the judgment in your life. Can we do those things now? And if your answer is no, that's okay. That is information that we can take with us in this, I call it an archaeological dig. I call body image like an archaeological dig because I remember even in the eating disorder center, you know, the girls would hate when people say body image is a journey. There was a lot of things that people said like, you know, body image is the last step to come. It's, it's not true. Like body image will only be in the journey or be a part of the story if you make it a part of the story. And if you are a person who is struggling with making peace with your here and now body, I would explore the narrative of what your body size means to you. And Is that a value that you want to hold or that you hold for other people uh, or is it just for you? Because I think that, yes, if we can address the roots of the fat positivity movement, which again started as and is part of the anti-racism movement, if we can acknowledge that fat oppression exists in our world and that we no longer want to condone that in the spaces that we hold, it starts with us. It starts with how we move through the world, how we perceive other people in the world, and how we speak in the world. I love the idea of associating fat positivity directly with anti-racism. Like when you use the sentence that way, it had a different spark in my brain and emotional connection because 
I deeply don't want to be racist, right? I deeply, deeply know that to the values and the every ounce of being that I have is like, no matter what I need to do, I don't want to do that. And so that is a connection, whether that, you know, connects for listeners or, you know, other things that we've shared connect for listeners. But I think that is kind of one of those rewiring reconnections that I can re go to, right? Like when I, when I'm feeling judgment or assumptions, or I'm feeling negativity associated with fatness in general, if I Mm. tell myself that's rooted in racism, it is so much easier for me to let go of that and be like, nope, I'm done with that. (laughs) Like literally I just envision myself like dropping it and just walking away because if I associate it with my own desire to be seen as valid, if I want, if I want to associate it with in any sort of way with myself, then there, that's where all the negativity, the judgment, the shame, and, and all of that comes in. And it's so much easier to let go of if I find a thing that I hold on to that says that's unwelcome here. And, and, and I think even, you know, I think sometimes the, you know, the anti-racism work is like the graduate level work for some of us who are coming into the, like, I remember the beginning, I was like, I don't understand it. How is it connected? And now I'm like, oh, yep, it's connected. My why was because I have a goddaughter and I didn't want her to grow up hating her body the same way that I did. So figure out what your why is. What motivates you? to explore these beliefs. I think what's hard about that, and I say this as a parent of many, many children. <laughs> Too many to count, really. It's it's funny. They all joke me about it. Yesterday I was at Costco buying more and more food yet again. And kiddo was, I was like, I cannot believe how much we have to come to Costco for food. And kiddo was like, you have four teenagers. What do you think? I was like, okay. But I think, you know, for me... I, I genuinely believed that if I outwardly portrayed that I was comfortable, if I said the things, I I think this is a a good analogy. You know how earlier, Brie, you were saying that you would say the things to those people that you were working on eating disorders with, and Mm -hmm. you would not be believing them yourself, right? And inwardly, you were not doing the behaviors you were talking about that I think manifests itself in parenting in ways that like, if we Mm -hmm. don't want, if we don't want our children to believe that we are thinking negatively about our own bodies, if we just don't say it to them, if we just don't say it around them, that they won't have exposure to that. And, and frankly, it's just not the case. Our children pick up or godchildren or nieces or nephews or, you know, whatever it is, who, whomever you're around, those little brains are such sponges. They pick up so much. And the nuance of, you know, not finishing a birthday cake or even, you know, saying, you know, it's time for birthday cake or whatever. And, someone being like, I just want a very small sliver, you know, like those Mm -hmm. kinds of things and the tone in which you say them. And and I'm not saying that you have to have the birthday cake. I'm saying if you're choosing not to have a large portion because of diet culture, because you don't want to be in a larger body, your Mm -hmm. children will know that. And so the, the best way that I have found as someone who has now 
parented up to teenage years and with children who have been parented to speak their mind very freely, (laughs) often to my detriment, is that they want the opportunity to talk to you about how you're feeling and why, because Mm. it validates their own feelings and Mm. helps them navigate these big adult feelings that they grow into. And I think oftentimes we don't want to put our adult worries on children. And what I've realized as I've become older is that the children have those worries. And if we're not parenting them through those moments, we're not teaching them to manage them in a healthy way. We're asking for them to grasp on to you know, what they've learned from watching us, what they've learned from their friends, what they've learned from culture and society and social media. And frankly, none of those things are what I want my kids to hang their hats on. I want them to hear from me. Being a teenager sucks and it's okay that you're physically unhappy right now. That's totally valid, whether it's gender identity, whether it's you know, body dysmorphia, whether it could be a myriad of things that teenagers go through. That's when I first had an eating disorder. That's when I became bulimic, when I was a teenager, because I didn't have an outlet for some of the things that I was feeling. And I was trying to control my life with food. And so I just, if I, because you you brought up your goddaughter, and I know that there are a lot of people who think like, oh, if I just don't do this in front of them, then it'll be fine. But, you know, what I've learned over the years is just that is absolutely not the case. And my children absolutely picked up from me. My biological children who were raised with me through my paleo days absolutely picked up all of my orthorexic and disordered eating habits. And now I find that it's my responsibility to help them unlearn those things before they leave the house, because I don't want them to take that with them. And so it's been, it's been an interesting thing to kind of see come full circle at this point. I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave you with these two thoughts. So, you know, Maya Angelou says, when we know better, we do better. And so you don't know what you don't know. So, you know, you didn't know it. And so if any of your listeners or even for yourself, like this is where that compassion piece comes in. You have been duped by diet culture. Diet culture is a cult and we have all been prey of the diet culture. And so the unlearning is long and is vast. It does not have a timeline and really associated with that compassion. The other thing, I wish I had read this book when I was in the beginning of my journey and I didn't. I resisted reading it because of my own internalized fat phobia because I was like, they're just justifying their body size and so I'm not going to read it. And now I've read it and I'm like, oh, I wish I had read it at the beginning. And so the book is Things No One Tells Fat Girls by Jess Baker. And I think it actually, I mean, even if you're not, a, you know, identify as, as, as a female, it's the book is still worth reading. So I highly recommend, I, I recommend that, that book as well. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the three books that Brie has recommended, which... I have read and endorsed two, and now I have another one for my book list. And I also want to point our listeners to where you can connect with Brie. As Brie mentioned, she has a podcast, Body Image with Brie, and a website, 
exactly the same name. So if you want to check out the podcast, you just add a slash podcast to that. And your social handle might be the easiest way for people to connect to you because I know you've got your website linked in your bio at Body Image with Brie. And I cannot wait to have a follow-on conversation with you over on Patreon because I have a story to tell, which I think you are going to like, but also be horrified by. So we'll be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, which is the best place also to ask questions. If you love the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support us, but so is leaving a review or hitting follow or subscribe in the podcast app that you're using. And I want to mention specifically, hopefully, turn your turn your listening ears back on, friends. There have been some anti-science written reviews in the podcast review section from way back when we were talking about, like, COVID and vaccines and stuff. So, obviously, that doesn't even really relate anymore. If you've been enjoying listening to the show in the new format, just typing up a quick review in the app that you're listening to would be immensely helpful so that other people can find us, too. Is there anything I forgot, Bree? you want to point people to? Just want to let people know that we've actually updated the name of my podcast to the Body Grievers Club. I'm sorry. I did not have that here. Well, that's okay. It's a recent change. And my heart is that, you know, like Weight Watchers has their, their meetings and, <laughs> you know, all of these diet places have their meetings. And so as, a, you know, I was a body griever. We got it. We have a, we need you a, have place a club. For I love it. We have a club. I love it. And you do work with professionals. Again, I I know I mentioned at the top of the show, but if you are not just an individual, but if you are a health professional, you also have information about your body image bootcamp, which can qualify for continuing education credits at Body Image with Brie. So hopefully listeners, you will join us over on the Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.